0: This morning's Hebrew lesson is from the book of Ruth. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of that man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then only she was left, along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth. And they lived there for about ten years. But both of the sons, Malon and Chilion, also died. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Then she arose along with her daughters-in-law to return from the field of Moab, because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to the people by providing food for them. She left the place where she had been, and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, "'Go, turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband.'" Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, No, we insist to return with you to your people. Naomi replied, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters. Oh, I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight, and even more if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters, this is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried May the Lord do this to me and more if death separates me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So both of them went along until they arrived in Bethlehem. When they arrived, the whole town was excited on account of them, and the women of the town asked, could this be Naomi? Friends, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, by all appearances... People lived a quiet, simple life in the French village of Le Chambon sur Lyon back in the 1940s. Every day, farmers would take their sheep to graze on nearby hills, and villagers tended to vegetables in their gardens. But appearances can be deceiving. Because little did anyone know that during the years when France was overtaken by the Nazi regime, this quaint little village was quietly conspiring together to hide as many Jewish people as possible so that they would not be taken into the concentration camps. It all began one night when a lady knocked on the front door of the town pastor, Andre Trochme. The lady was a German Jew who was fleeing from the Nazis and hoped that the pastor might be able to help her André was fairly new to life in Le Chambon. As a conscientious objector to the war, he had been too controversial for his previous church. So they sent him to pastor this tiny little church in a remote village of France to get him out of the way. Surely he couldn't cause too much trouble there. But little did they know that they had sent the right person to the right place at exactly the right time, his daughter would go on to say, years later. Soon, Andre and his wife Magda began to organize this underground network to protect this woman and many others who began coming through Le Chambon seeking help. When the Jewish people arrived, Andre would announce from the pulpit of his church that a number of Old Testaments had arrived in town, And asked his congregation who might be willing to take some of them. There were always more than enough volunteers. Before long, every single home in this town was hiding people. And they did this not just for days, but for years. They sheltered people, provided them with documentation, fed them, educated their children, and even arranged for hundreds of them to escape safely to Switzerland or Spain. Whenever the Nazi authorities would come through the town, absolutely no one would talk. Two survivors say they still remember the feeling of breathless stillness as they hid upstairs while the French police questioned the homeowners downstairs in the kitchen. One of the farmers later recalled, As soon as the soldiers left, we would go out into the forest and start singing a song. And whenever people heard that song, the Jews knew that it was safe for them to come out again. The hospitality of the villagers went to incredible lengths, one person says. The village was mostly Christian, and yet they went out of their way to help the Jews practice their faith too. Rudy Appel, who was a young refugee at the time, still remembers a Hanukkah party in his classroom in December 1943, in which all the Jewish children in his class lit Hanukkah candles and sang their traditional songs, as the school director, coached by Rudy himself, accompanied them on the piano. One day, the French police surrounded the school and demanded that the school's director tell them which of these children were the Jewish children. But he said he had no idea what they were talking about. He knew he could have been killed or taken to one of the camps. But when he was later asked why he had made such a bold move for people to whom he had no sense of obligation or responsibility, he responded simply, it was the human thing to do. Likewise, two French police buses arrived at the village weeks later. The police captain went straight to the church to Pastor Andre and demanded to have a list of the Jews being sheltered in town. But Andre said, I do not know what a Jew is. I know only human beings. Pastor Andre in this village of Le Chambon ultimately rescued 5,000 Jewish people, as many as their entire population. It was the largest scale, most long-lasting, and most successful haven of refuge anywhere in Nazi-occupied Europe. And it has since become known as a conspiracy of goodness that the world will never forget. Now, I don't know about you all, but I had never heard this incredible story before. I got lost in all the articles and reviews I started reading, but I actually discovered it because I'm a Bible nerd, and I was reading this incredible commentary on the book of Ruth, when one of the authors, Tamara Cohn Eskenazi, shares this story because she says that the story of Ruth reminds her of another conspiracy of goodness at a different time and different place. Now the Hebrew word for goodness that we see woven throughout the book of Ruth is called hesed. It's defined as good deeds performed for one toward whom you have no sense of responsibility or obligation. And just like what happened in Le Shambon, the story of Ruth shows us that hesed, this goodness and loving kindness... Can be contagious. Eskenazi says in Ruth, Hesed has almost a domino effect, helping to move the story from a place of death and despair to life and hope. Now, the book of Ruth is one of my favorites. It's actually one of only two books in the Bible named after women, the other being Esther. Good job. But there's one more interesting thing to note about the story of Ruth before we dive in today. Up until this point in the Bible, God has played an active lead role in the story. But when we get to the book of Ruth, God seems strangely absent There will be no burning bushes or parted seas or walls come tumbling down in this story. In fact, God will not speak a single word in the book of Ruth. Instead, this is a story about ordinary people in a simple agrarian town. A story about people who struggle to know how to be family to one another. A story about people who work hard in the fields each day to have food to eat. I mean, there's nothing supernatural about any of that, right? And yet, if we look closely within this relatively ordinary story, I believe we can see God's goodness expressed in extravagant ways, regardless of whether God's name is ever mentioned or not. So with those eyes, let's jump in. Ruth begins, as we heard, with a bit of family history. We learn that there was a famine in Bethlehem, so Elimelech and Naomi leave their home and journey to Moab to find food. They have two sons who marry Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth, but after some time, Elimelech dies, and a little later, his two sons die too. So Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are all left mourning, but especially in a society in which fathers And husbands and sons provided a significant amount of security. All three of these women are left in a very vulnerable situation. So the story begins as a story of barrenness. The land is barren. There's no food. Their wombs are barren. There's no one to carry on their family line. And their family has become barren too. I mean, it's really no wonder that Naomi feels as if God has turned against her. So when she hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem, it's a natural choice for her to want to go back home. But she tells Ruth and Orpah to go back to their families in Moab, where they can be better cared for. And so in this tearful scene of saying goodbye, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and leaves, but we are told that Ruth won't budge. She says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. It's an incredible moment, right? One scholar compares Ruth to Abraham when he responds to God's call in Genesis 12, leaving his family and his country behind to go to the land that God will show him. And you can also see similarities between Ruth and Rebecca when she announces that she will leave her family as well in Genesis 24. Abraham, Ruth, and Rebecca are all of these biblical figures who show us that they are brave enough to leave behind familiarity and to venture into places with God even when they are completely unknown. But we also need to remember that Abraham has promised this significant blessing, not only for him, but for his entire family. Rebecca has promised a husband, and Ruth isn't promised anything. Not blessing, not security, not greatness. And she knows all too well that there will be no protecting husband waiting for her on the other side. Because we can't forget that Ruth is a Moabite woman, pledging to leave her home and to go to Bethlehem, where she will be a complete outsider. This is particularly challenging if you read words like Deuteronomy 23, which introduced the Israelites to exclude Moabites permanently from their community. Verse 3 says, no Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Do not even seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. Knowing that these were the rules that this community is instructed to live by, some people wonder if Naomi is actually embarrassed or even ashamed to bring Ruth back with her to Bethlehem. I mean, what will people say about that? Maybe that's why she is so insistent that Ruth stay back, go back to Moab. She tells her to go back three different times. In the end, we actually don't know what Naomi's motives are here. But despite being told to go back, Ruth not only chooses to stay with her, the text says that she clings to Naomi. And this word cling in Hebrew implies a permanent bonding, like a superglue adhesive, Interestingly enough, it's the same word used at other times to describe Israel's relationship with God. We see it again in Joshua 22 when the people are told to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, to cling to God. And so, in this situation of complete hopelessness, Ruth makes a bold move an act of goodness and faithfulness for someone whom she no longer has any sense of obligation toward. And in this story, in which God doesn't appear to have an active role, it's Ruth. It's the Moabite woman who embodies God's goodness and brings it to life. It's an important reminder for us that perhaps in those situations where God is nowhere to be found. Where we wonder, where could God be in the middle of this mess? Where could God be in the middle of this school year that so many teachers have told me is the hardest year they've ever experienced? Where could God be in the middle of this pandemic? Where could God be in the middle of this diagnosis? Where could God be And you fill in the blank. When we keep hoping and praying and waiting for God to just show up and do something, what if God is actually waiting on us to show up too? What if the way that God sometimes works is not without us or in spite of us, but in us and through us? What if God shows up when you and I are bold enough to make the first move like Ruth did and to trust that maybe God will meet us there? Once a rabbi was giving a presentation on the conspiracy of evil that led to the atrocities of the Holocaust. But during his presentation, someone stopped him, a Dutch man who had been from this small village in France rescuing countless Jews. And he said, Why are you only talking about this conspiracy of evil? Why are you not also talking about the conspiracy of goodness that happened too? Well, the rabbi was speechless. He didn't think much could be said about goodness in light of the horrors of the Holocaust. And yet this Dutch man insisted. He said, do you think I could have hidden Jewish families in my home for years without the active cooperation of the mailman and the milkman and so many other friends and neighbors? For every one person we saved, there were seven people who helped to rescue. And so, Rabbi, there was absolutely a conspiracy of goodness going on, too. Friends, this begs the question, are you and I part of a conspiracy of goodness in God's world today? Years from now, will someone look back on this time and insist that despite all the evils and pains and injustices, despite the death and despair of the pandemic, despite everything happening around us, that there is absolutely a conspiracy of goodness going on, too? I mean, will it be said that in the midst of the horrors happening in Afghanistan— that there was also a conspiracy of goodness that offered food and shelter and fighting for women's rights and that made sure refugees were safe and cared for? Will it be said that despite the many ways racism continued to rear its ugly head, sometimes changing forms but never really changing, that there was also a conspiracy of goodness that fought hate with love? that finally began to listen, to learn, to repent, to repair, and to be transformed in the process? Will it be said that despite the heartbreaking losses we experienced this year and the beloved saints who are no longer with us, there was also a conspiracy of goodness that surrounded them? that surrounded their families and loved ones with care and courage and hope every single moment of their journey and surrounds us still? Will it be said that despite a pandemic, there was a conspiracy of goodness that carried us and continues to carry us still? The truth is that you and I could recite a whole litany of all of the conspiracies of evil and pain and injustice going on in our world today. The question is, how will you and I respond? How is God inviting you and me and Highland to be co-conspirators in God's goodness and kindness and unrelenting love? Ultimately, I believe that Ruth helped to usher in a whole conspiracy of goodness through her unrelenting love for Naomi. That God's loving kindness through her gave her a role to play in a story she never could have imagined on her own. Because you see much later in the Bible, in Matthew 1, we read about Jesus' family tree. It's one of those texts that can be kind of boring, so we tend to gloss over it, because so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. But but if you're paying attention and you read down to verse 5, you will notice something. You will notice a woman's name and a list of almost all men. And not only that, but you will notice a Moabite woman's name and a list of almost all Jewish men. And not only that, but you will notice a Moabite woman's name who was also a widow at one point and didn't have any children or any hope at the beginning of the story. And yet somehow, some way, her family line carried on all the way to the birth of Jesus. But that's where we're going to pick up the story next week. So come back. I want to share today this morning as we were finishing the the early service, Marilyn Sanders came up to me and with tears in her eyes, she was remembering her husband, John Sanders, also part of our great cloud of witnesses here. And she said I asked my sons the other day what they remember most about their father, and they all said they remembered this. They remembered that he was kind. And she said, whenever I think about God's loving kindness, I think about John. What I told her is, Marilyn, I think that kindness has spread through your entire family because that same loving kindness I see in you. It only takes a spark to get a fire going, the song goes. And so may we be people who conspire together to light sparks of God's goodness and unrelenting love. After all, who knows what fires we might start next, Highland. Amen.